Welcome back for another episode of The Break Room. I'm your host, Morgan Hensley, and in this episode, we'll explore the complex challenges, creative solutions, and novel partnership opportunities within the health system landscape. Health systems play a pivotal role in the communities they serve. Health systems are not only epicenters of healthcare delivery, but also pillars in their local economies. However, factors such as COVID-19's disruption and the industry's ongoing evolution have pushed forward-looking health system leaders to adapt in order to maintain and even expand their role. In an article published by the Harvard Business Review, the authors noted that large, established companies can leverage the strategic advantage of incumbency by harnessing complexity and maintaining a long-term focus. Innovative partnerships are one powerful tool to accomplish these goals and more. Here with me today to discuss health systems obstacles and the potential value of a partnership is Mike Flamini, Chief Business Development Officer at Privia Health. We'll examine models to align independent and employed physicians, criteria of a high-performance partner, strategies to advance value-based care, and much more. And with that, let's start the show. Mike, welcome to the break room. I'm excited to discuss the the challenges, opportunities, uh, the innovation in the health system space today. To start us off, can you please tell our listeners a bit about your background in healthcare and experience with health systems? Happy to, Morgan. Let me just start by thanking you for having me on. I'm a big fan of The Break Room and listen to all your podcasts. So uh, it's a real honor to to be on with you this morning. Look forward to the conversation. My current role at Privia Health is the Chief Business Development Officer. I've been doing this job for going on eight years now, passionate about it, excited every day about the opportunities. I'm primarily responsible as the tip of the spear at Privia for supporting the growth of the organization. We tend to think of growth in two ways. One is into new states, or we may refer to those states as markets. And then once we're in a a state or a market, bringing doctors into our medical group and onto the platform. I'm primarily responsible for the first of those, which is supporting Privia's expansion uh, into these new markets. We do that through mostly through partnerships. So my, uh, my time is spent meeting and discussing relationship opportunities with like-minded medical groups, health systems, payers, other players in the healthcare ecosystem that might have interest in working with Privia to bring innovation and uh, our model into these markets. So I've been doing this job, as I mentioned, eight years, but really my entire career in some form or fashion uh, has been steered towards supporting organizations, healthcare organizations specifically, whether it's health systems, I've worked inside of payers, I've been a management consultant, and no matter where I am or the job that I'm responsible for, the health system in the communities that they are in are so important, so vital to the healthcare economy and the general economy. They are often the largest employer in their local markets, as you know. So no matter where you are in your thinking and how you're focused on things like innovation and disruption, the health system has to be a key part of that because they're just an important integral part of the healthcare ecosystem there. And so I've spent 
really a career that started as an employee up in Boston at Brigham and Women's Hospital. So working directly in, I think, one of the great institutions in the world in terms of academic medicine. Uh, spent a career then uh, in management consulting, advising health systems, spent most of my time on the health system side. And then even in my position prior to Privia, which was I ran corporate strategy for Aetna, a big part of my focus was ways that we could uh, strategize with health systems to bring products and solutions to market as partners between Aetna and those health systems. So it's no accident, I guess, that here at Privia, we eventually found our way to having real thinking and business models that are supportive of the health systems strategies in their markets. Thank you for sharing, Mike. You you raised so many great points around growth and the role of health systems in communities that I look forward to exploring over the course of this episode. Uh, to add some more context for our listeners, I'd like to ask a, a somewhat broad question around the challenges health systems face. Uh, according to a report from Kaufman Hall, uh, and this is a rather long quote, Hospital and health system leaders will need to address questions of access to care, supply chain management, patient throughput, workforce deployment, service line development, and physical footprint. So which of those, or other issues not listed, do you see as the main challenges that health systems face? I think there's a, uh, a time element to this. The time and space that we're in right now is certainly informing the unique challenges that these health systems have faced with COVID. But remember, these are oftentimes billion dollar and multi-billion dollar enterprises, complex, uh, often, uh, you know, multi-regional systems. Some of them are, are national. So the problems that they face are equally as complex. So I'm never one to just pick from a long list of things because I'm not sure that that's how they would think about it. What, what I have been hearing a lot about recently and reading a lot about are the workforce challenges that they have, in part driven by COVID and, and staffing issues associated with that and burnout associated with that. But I think there's a larger trend going on across the U.S. economy as well. Uh, these health systems, as we talked about earlier, are often the largest employers in their communities and access to, to the right talent at the, you know, the right economics is going to be a continued challenge that they face, including the physician and provider workforce. I don't think that the issue around uh, staffing is, is limited to the non-clinician side. I think it certainly applies to uh, the provider side as well and ensuring like any great business that you have uh, access to, to great talent and building a great culture. Yeah. Absolutely. I'll definitely dig into the talent and culture you mentioned at the end there in just a minute. But before I do, I want to discuss alignment, which is one of the main themes for our conversation today. When confronted with the complexity you noted, uh, as well as other factors and challenges, a common response for health systems is to consolidate and employ physicians. But as Frank Leatherby, CEO of Community Health Services at Health First, mentioned in a previous episode of The Break Room, employment doesn't always equal alignment. So 
what trends are we seeing either in the M&A sphere or in novel forward-looking alignment strategies? What I hear increasingly from health system executives, they believe in the employment model. They want to maintain what they have, make it certainly make it work better, always possible, not only in offering great clinical care, but in the way that uh, they're governing their employed groups, the way that those employed groups are uh, working on service line integration, movement into value-based care. Some are going much faster than others, but I believe all of them see that this is uh, an inevitability. It's just a question of how they get there. So I think that the current employment models will largely remain intact. And I think most health systems uh, would prefer to continue to improve upon the groups that they have. At the same time, though, I'm definitely hearing more that they would prefer if they had an option not to continue to acquire and employ new providers. That if there are better mousetraps to do this, better ways to align their community physicians to continue to offer them value and clinical integration without having to go all the way to employment. And I, I think they would prefer to find ways to, to do that. The alignment piece is really critical in that equation though, Morgan, because what they are, I think, appropriately interested in doing is they're, again, multi-billion dollar enterprises. They have to think about competitive advantage and how they build loyalty among their community physicians who oftentimes these community doctors are what's referred to as splitters. So they may send certain patients for you know, specialty care to one health system, and they're going to send other patients to another health system. Sometimes that breaks down by service line, clinical specialty. Sometimes that breaks down just by relationships. But very, it's very rare that a community physician would send all of their patients when they need specialty care to a single institution, assuming there are more than one in the community. So what these health systems are ultimately interested in is keeping as, as much of that referral base intact, uh, working with these splitters, understanding that they will always be splitters, but to offer a value proposition to them to where access for their patients and great quality care and great clinical outcomes are what's driving those decisions. And so I think they, they need alignment more than they have today. Their playbook has been, well, if we employ them, that at least maybe gets us some ways down that continuum. But as Frank Leatherby astutely pointed out, <clears throat> employment doesn't always equal alignment. So uh, in these newer models of aligning with community physicians without having to employ them, I think they're working through in their heads, you know, how does that equal or improve upon the alignment that I have with an employed model? I'd now like to turn to partnerships, which can certainly be one of those uh, better mousetraps that you mentioned there. That calls to mind another takeaway from the Kaufman Hall report I touched on earlier. So, um, Mike and our listeners, please bear with me as I read another lengthy quote. The report concludes by noting, few health systems will have the resources to take on these challenges alone. A fundamental question will be, what they need to control and where they can seek out strategic partnerships that enable them to focus on their core business strategy while 
expanding the services and optimizing the efficiency, accessibility, and affordability of care they provide to their communities. With that in mind, what key elements should health system leaders look for when assessing a potential strategic partnership, such as one with Privia Health? There are a couple of things that health system leaders need to be looking for with partnerships. Obviously, one is, can it address the, uh, the problem that they're trying to solve by doing it faster, cheaper, and better? If it can't, then I'm not sure there's a reason for the partnership that uh, if they just built it themselves, couldn't accomplish anyway. Secondarily, though, assuming that all of those preconditions are in place, is it a partner that is aligned, and we'll keep coming back to that same word, that is aligned financially, culturally, and strategically with the health system? These generally are longer-term relationships. It's not a vendor relationship. It's a true partner relationship. And therefore, there's a longer term uh, to these relationships. So are the companies that they're looking at as partners uh, ones that they think will be mutually beneficial over the long term? And uh, I think that's just a really critical element. At Privia, we look at it the same way through our lens, the health systems that we're working with. Uh, do they believe in what we believe in? Are they reasonable folks that can sit down and, and work out uh, relationships and hard issues? And I think those two things that, you know, does it meet the business model challenge? And are they going to be good partners uh, when times get tough that you can rely on each other to work through that? Those seem to be the two critical elements in thinking through whether a partnership makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Having both the solutions and alignment are, are such core, foundational, uh, vital principles that can make or break a partnership. Before we discuss more specific uh, targeted solutions, I'd like to ask, what are some essential services that a high quality partner can offer especially when it comes to physician alignment? Well, it's certainly uh, understanding physicians, the way that they run their practices, being able to bring tools and technologies to bear to support these physicians so that, you know, it's a tough, tough job out there being an independent doctor today. It is only getting more expensive, more complicated administratively. Same issue around attracting and retaining talent maybe even more impactful because uh, they, these are small organizations that really can't afford to lose the talented people they have. So in any partnership around physician alignment, I think it has to start with, can they provide value immediately to these physicians in a way that the health system, again, may be able to do in some respects, but can't do with the speed and thoroughness that a, a partner is able to do it. So if, if, if you don't have a partner that's achieving those goals, with a positive ROI for the health system, with immediate benefits to the providers, then I'm not sure that it's going to work. The second piece is talent and culture. They have to mesh really well with the health system, but they also, I think, have to push the health system to think differently about its approach to the market and innovation. There are many companies today that are well-financed, whether they've gone public or whether they're privately held, but have a really good balance sheet, who are in markets today working directly with physicians. Uh, I think you'll hear the word disrupting 
quite often. Uh, we'll, we'll see what that actually ends up meaning. But I think the target is to disrupt the status quo, the business models that are in markets today. And the health system tends to be uh, in the center of that and looking to keep volume out of hospitals, looking to bring doctors out of hospitals, things that are going to challenge the prevailing business models of these health systems. So finding partners that bring a culture and a talent and an approach that the health system can even think through disrupting itself, uh, I think is really important uh, so that it's not happening to them. They're more in control of the, the pace and the degree of the disruption because they're also putting out these innovations in the market, albeit through a partnership. 100%. As, as we said earlier, talent, culture, and disruption are absolutely critical components of a partnership. Building on your mention of the value of a partner that achieves the partnership's goals, could you please share with our listeners a few highlights and achievements from Privia Health partnerships or uh, strategic alliances? Sure. I'll highlight two. Uh, one is with our partner in Florida, which is a great health system and integrated delivery system called Health First, where uh, our Partnership is multifaceted. It involves leveraging our technology platform and suite of MSO services uh, that their employed groups who remain employees of the health system actually take advantage of. So we were able to offer, uh, we think a best in class uh, tech, ambulatory technology solution and MSO services that uh, were a, an improvement over what they had before Privia did the partnership with them. Secondly, they own their own health plan and we're working very closely with them, both with their employed groups, but as we are out in the community working with community physicians to uh, support the objectives around their health plan. They have a Medicare Advantage product. They have commercial products as well. And so we're introducing uh, new payment models and new capabilities that their health plan can offer to uh, create the right incentives to work with physicians, again, whether you're employed or in the community, those incentives are important for driving new behaviors that are, we think, improving the quality of care and the outcomes. And those are two examples of the great work that we're, we're doing with Health First. We just hit our three-year anniversary with them, and it, it feels like we just are getting started. There's just so much to do, and uh, with a great partner like that, always talking about where's the next opportunity to bring value first to the community and the patients, and then to think about how Health First and Privia as well uh, benefit from that. The second example I'll give is a relationship that Privia has in Dallas with Dallas Children's Health System. Very different relationship than our Health First relationship. Privia is already an established medical group in and around the Fort Worth and Dallas market. So what we are working with children's team on is um, speaking to community pediatricians that are close affiliates of Children's Hospital. And back to the, uh, the point that we were making earlier, Children's has no intention to employ those providers. They want to see them thriving in private practice. So we actually have a relationship in which we'll approach those providers uh, and, and talk to them about the benefits of coming in and joining 
the Privia Medical Group and then having certain clinical alignment back with Children's Hospital. So very different relationships, different attributes of Privia uh, supporting each of these health system partners. It reflects the, the flexibility that's needed when you're thinking about the 4,000 different hospitals and health systems that are out there around the country. There are certain commonalities, but in large part, you, you have to get in and understand the uniqueness of each, the problems they're trying to solve. You know, maybe your model can't solve all of them, but knowing what your lane is and what you do really well, and then being flexible to adapt to meet their needs and the needs of their communities is what's key. Adaptability, flexibility, always looking to the horizon, all such core principles to look for in a partnership. So how do those diverse partnership offerings and uh, drivers of physician alignment that you mentioned, the MSO, technology, relationship, translate into practice for health system partners? Or to rephrase that, how can these offerings or models fix current models misalignment and what's needed to make further progress? The current models that most health systems are using to solve that problem, I think, is a step in the right direction, but uh, I think they are necessary but insufficient to close that gap entirely. And they're, they're doing that through clinically integrated networks, uh, or CINs, as they're often referred to. These models are designed both as a contracting entity around value-based care or risk products that allow the health systems to bring both employed providers and community providers underneath that, those structures that they all share in the same programs with the same quality metrics, the same financial incentives attached to that. Uh, and on large part, again, those have done a good job of organizing a lot of physicians in the community underneath these structures. But ultimately, I think where they are struggling some more than others, but certainly many are struggling on the independent side it is around data and technology integration and engagement with those community providers. Let me go through each of those. Um, so let me start with the technology side. Most often these CINs are asking for information from the legacy systems of each independent practice part of the reporting requirements that they in turn have to report back to the payers. The challenge they face is that these independent providers are all remaining on their legacy EMR system. Those uh, are ranging from very sophisticated to very unsophisticated systems, outdated systems with no ability to really have much of any reporting capabilities that is efficient and easy for the health system and the CIN to collect. So if you have 50 providers in and you have 50 different EMRs, there's some technologies that exist out there that are, are bringing the, the information flows together, but it's expensive, it's inefficient. And so I think there's a challenge with the technology itself. Uh, that gets to data and the inconsistency and latency of the critical data that providers need to improve the quality of their care at the at the point of care with the patient to report timely on their quality metrics and other clinical outcomes to have a view of the holistic patient experience 
what happens to their patient when they leave the office? Most of these providers don't know because their technology is not integrated with other technologies in the community. So again, this disparate set of technologies that exist, I think are sub-optimizing the overall objectives of these clinically integrated networks in terms of the objective of improving the overall quality of care. Both of those lead to an engagement issue with providers. The ability to keep them engaged, to keep them active in the relationship with the CIN, where they don't employ these providers, but even if they did, I'm, I'm not sure it dramatically changes, but the, uh, the further you are away from these, and I don't mean that geographically, I, I just mean from a, a business model perspective, just having them in your CIN does not guarantee engagement. Having the right financial incentives, having the right resources in that local office, being able to communicate with them seamlessly through the technologies in a way that's affordable for both the health system, the CIN, and that local practice. Because there are certainly large-scale industrial technologies that you can put in, but they're often just not affordable and weren't built to do this. So I think, you know, in general, those three areas, technology, data integration, provider engagement, uh, are, are all the keys. And these CIN models are taking those important steps to get there. But, you know, I think the industry writ large has to continue to find ways to uh, bring those together to make sure that those community docs are just as aligned with the mission of the CIN and the health system as the employed doctors are. You you set me up perfectly for my next question. So uh, thank you, Mike, for this seamless segue. You mentioned technology, uh, data integration, and provider engagement, which are essential to not only alignment, but also advancing value-based care. Transitioning to and then succeeding in value-based care is a widespread, complex issue for health systems uh, and healthcare in general. We're seeing continual pressure to shift models with CMMI, uh, or the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, recently announcing that they'd like to enroll every Medicare beneficiary in an accountable care plan by 2030. So how might a strategic alliance optimize a health system's CIN or ACO or support a health system partner who's interested in accelerating that that volume to value transition? As we talked about earlier, Morgan, you know, the, the health systems need to compete in their markets, need to demonstrate to the payers, to the community physicians, to the patients in the community that they should be the preferred destination and partner for you know, not only the, the clinical care, but on these business models that we're talking about. So there is a, a real competition going on right now for you know, what's called covered lives. These examples would be exactly what you're citing uh, with the ACOs and CMMI's objective to get as many patients in, into an ACO as possible. So many health systems uh, already have ACOs. Again, some work better than others, but the race is on really to be able to align with as many covered lives, both in your Medicare population and your commercial population. For many of these health systems, they, they serve inner city communities or rural communities. So Medicaid is also a really critical population and the managed Medicaid 
populations uh, are equally as important, if not more important, in some of these markets versus commercial or Medicare. So you really have to look at this holistically. So how do you go about acquiring covered lives and how do you monetize covered lives? I think that is one of the real open questions for these health systems that are concerned with blowing up their or killing their cash cow, which is largely fee-for-service today. They have an operating model and expense structure that is designed to support a fairly predictable fee-for-service revenue model. They have a lot of questions and uncertainties when it comes to the revenue model around value-based care. On the surface, you know, they understand that if they reduce unnecessary volume, either through emergency room visits or hospitalizations, or they shift a certain ancillary volume outside of the hospital to freestanding facilities. Those are some of the objectives of a high-performing value-based care or risk arrangement, but it's also compromising their fee-for-service revenue. So we find many systems are still figuring out this balancing act and what's going to be in the best interest of really sustainability and predictability of their revenues. Getting access to covered lives, though, gives you important scale and allows you to start to have conversations with payers where as a more of a partner, not a traditional payer provider relationship where you're maybe fighting over the last fee for service dollar in a negotiation. But this allows you to step back and think about, A, what's best for the community and how do we create sustainable economics for everybody involved that if we're delivering the right outcomes, quality, cost, access, that uh, there will be you know, the right incentives and the right payment models where everybody wins. The industry hasn't figured this out yet, but we see more progressive health systems taking a, a more aggressive posture towards value-based care. Not that they're selling the farm on their fee-for-service business by no means, but they realize at some point they have to go figure this out. And I think you can de-risk figuring it out, actually. It may be a little counterintuitive, but I think you can de-risk it by having more covered lives in these products that allow you to uh, be able to work in a more strategic way with the payers to de-risk it versus having a small number of lives that has a lot of actuarial risk inside of that with a lot of variability. Again, scale and, and more covered lives means more predictability and the ability to maybe you know work through uh, some bumps in the road in the, in the short term. So I think CMMI, Medicare is always going to be the payer that is leading the industry towards new models of care. And I think you'll see the commercial payers and the Medicare Advantage payers uh, coming in behind them with similar models and, and tactics. So if, if the industry can figure this out with the Medicare population, uh, I think it'll go a long way towards helping these health systems make that important transition of moving into value-based care. Never FIFA service will never go away. It's just a question of how you balance it in your overall business and revenue model. It is going to be fascinating to see how value-based care progresses. Recently, I've seen experts saying that the COVID-19 pandemic has effectively proven value-based care's importance, while other experts are forecasting that value-based care will slow. And in either case, it will be interesting to see how health systems and their partners adapt and transition while maintaining balance between payment models. So what, what other factors might be at play in this situation? 
I, I think that's right, Morgan. And we continue to see when you look across the country at all the major stakeholders in healthcare, health systems, payers, big technology companies, big retail companies, they are all, the, the lines are blurring from what had been a clearly defined set of roles between payers and health systems, as an example. Now those lines aren't so clear anymore. And you're seeing payers who have provider businesses, you're seeing health systems that own their own health plans. You're seeing tech companies that are in the direct provision of, of care, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of experimentation going on right now. I think that's good. There, there will certainly be winners and losers uh, that come out of that over time, but new business models that are uh, supporting that transition. Uh, I don't know that there'll ever be a single one that wins in the end, but uh, the more that are out there uh, experimenting on the edges to see what's going to work and what's sustainable and scalable. I think it's it's good for healthcare overall and smart organizations will will kind of follow in, in suit and figure out the models that are going to work best for them. It is so interesting to observe how the the innovation, the disruption, the influence of somewhat unorthodox or unconventional participants and other factors all collide. How might this shifting landscape impact health systems? I think the advantage of health systems and the equation around disruption, new entrants, the blurring of the lines around those traditional roles, the advantage that the health system has, it is the anchor in these communities. It has brand awareness. It has an understanding of the way that healthcare works for better or worse in its local community. Uh, I never underestimate well-capitalized, technology-enabled companies to come in and do really great work and to be really disruptive. But I have seen in the past, and I'm not saying it's true now, but I have seen it in the past where the technology companies in particular will run into healthcare without a full understanding of healthcare data around some of the realities of the risk of healthcare, the regulation inherent in these healthcare models. So health systems are very well positioned from the foundational perspective to be these key anchors in their communities. I think what they need to do more of is think uh, innovatively and disruptively uh, with their business models. And those that choose to take advantage of that will be in a really good spot. Again, compared to those that let disruption happen to them because they can't see far enough ahead to challenge themselves and to stir up the, the status quo a little bit. So progressive health systems have a real opportunity to be the winners at the end of the day, given where they are today. Yeah, beautifully stated, Mike. I like to conclude episodes by gazing ahead toward the future. As you noted, these progressive health systems are pillars in their community. And as such, they are uh, uniquely positioned to harness disruption, innovate, adapt, uh, better serve their communities. Though some of the main obstacles to realizing this full potential are misalignment of and lack of support for physicians. So uh, peering through the physician lens, what do you see as the greatest challenges and opportunities for physicians? whether employed by or affiliated with health systems, 
over the next uh, five to 10 years? Well, I try not to be in the forecasting business too much. I don't have a crystal ball, Morgan. I'd love to meet someone that does that can help me get some clarity on this. What I believe instead is that the future is really up to all of us to go and shape and define. So it comes down to the role that you're willing to play in shaping your own destiny and shaping hopefully a, a, an improvement in the overall uh, performance of the U.S. healthcare system and local systems of care when you look around the country. I think the opportunity has never been better for the independent physician to start to take an active role in defining what this looks like. They have more options than they've ever had before uh, to both remain independent, to get access to capital, to get access to tools and information, uh, and to really step up and be leaders in their community that are helping to shape the way that healthcare works. And some, some do it today, but the, provider, the physician landscape is defined really one of fragmentation. You know, we often hear that maybe two thirds when you look nationally of all physicians are in some employment model. That number is probably about right, although I think there's a lot of variation around that when you look locally. But even putting that aside, um, there are a lot of small practices that lack resources, that lack the scale to have a seat at the table. And I believe firmly, and I think it's true of Privia, that uh, if we can work with providers to give them the appropriate seat at the table so that when we're talking about healthcare policy, we're talking about healthcare regulation, we're talking about new payment models, the discussion that has traditionally gone on among health systems and payers by and large part, now includes the important voice of that, you know, small local practice. But this will take time. I think there's uh, an education for providers. There's a leadership role that they have to get comfortable in. I think they have to appreciate the larger economics and alignment issues that are at play. And they're just focused every day on showing up and trying to provide the best care that they can to their patients. So as we continue to evolve and we, meaning the industry, all of these models, I think the critical piece is ensuring that local physicians are thriving and that they feel empowered to have a seat at that table and a real voice in not only their outcome as a sector of the healthcare economy, but a voice in the outcome of, of what's happening with patients and uh, with all of the other complicated issues that we've talked about on the podcast today. Physician education, leadership, empowerment, that's the perfect note to end on. Uh, Mike, I have had a wonderful time discussing everything from health systems to partnerships, complex challenges, and innovative solutions. Uh, as the industry progresses and we, we define our destiny, I'd, I'd love to welcome you back on the break room. But for now, I want to thank you so much for the informative, insightful, and engaging conversation we shared today. Morgan, uh, always great to talk to you. I had a lot of fun doing this and uh, look forward to being able to talk again. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning into The Break Room. You can view Mike's article titled, How Can Health Systems Harness the Value of Incumbency and Disruption 
on Informed, the blog by Privia Health. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and blog to stay up to date on all things healthcare. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'll see you next time for another episode of The Break Room. So stay tuned 